is from chapter 6 in Genesis, starting at verse 1. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever. They are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. When the sons of God went out to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of hum the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Steve. I wonder if you've got a Bible, we need to turn to Genesis 4. Um, there's a stack of them up the back. We should have got them out this morning because I'm not just doing that Genesis 6 passage. We're going 4, 5 and 6. We are going crazy this morning. Genesis 6 is a doozy, is it not? It's a doozy. It's a supernatural oddity, which is what I titled this message. Although our faith contains a virgin birth. Did anyone forget about that? We also have a resurrection from the dead. There's a number of those. We have our own resurrection in the last days. We have a Holy Spirit that gives us new life, hearts of flesh, a Holy Spirit that guides us, recreates us new, sanctifies us is the word. These things are all supernatural oddities. So we shouldn't be afraid of such things when we see them in the Bible. We shouldn't be worried or concerned. They are there for good reasons because this is who we are. Well, we're not mucking around this morning. We're going to be talking about the antediluvians. Did you expect to hear that in church this morning? The antediluvians, that's those people who lived and walked the earth before the flood. We're going to talk in this group, there are humans, the offspring of Adam and Eve, as we know. There's their combined offspring. There's the angels who actually come to earth, make babies, and there's a group of people in that kind of hybrid as well. I know, who knew? It's there. And then, of course, there are the Nephilim, and we'll talk about them too. And then in the middle of all of this, these chapters of 4, 5, and 6, there's this unfolding story, this cosmic battle between good and evil. And at the heart of this battle is the sin of humanity, the sin of Adam and Eve. Do we have our work cut out for us this morning? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. I should mention that the book of Enoch features too. It's a, we're going to talk about that. I'm going to speak about it quite unfavorably, so I'm sorry if, it's, it's, if that comes. You'll, anyway, we'll get there. Hopefully justifiably so. And, well, we better pray because there's just so much to get through here and we've got to do it as quick as we can. But we're going to learn from it, I hope. Lord, we thank you for your great love. I open our hearts and minds to your word as we unpack it, as we speak it, as we read it, as it... Uh, let it impact us in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Now I'm going to need a clicker. Who's got the clicker? Ah, thanks. Okay, back to you. Where are we? Oh, humans. That's right. First up, we've got the humans. Oh, the book of Genesis. Here we go. Now, the book of Genesis, if you look from chapter 4, if you happen to have it in front of you, contains a number of genealogies. You remember when I first read the Bible, I was like, oh, this crazy stuff, Adam and Eve, it was all good, and the snake deceived them, and then fell into sin, and then I got to these genealogies, and I gave up. Like, it was just like, why is this here? Who cares who had who and how long they live? It all seemed a bit crazy. But here it is from Genesis 4. The parents, the grandchildren, all of this. And it's, it's actually really important because it details these family groups, these antediluvians, um, all of those who walked the earth since Adam and Eve. Now, the first group that's recorded in Genesis 4 is the family line of Cain. If you remember, Cain killed Abel. His offering wasn't acceptable for God, and he, out of jealousy, he murdered Abel and was sent away. Uh, he was sent into exile. So the first group is in Genesis 4, and these are the Canaanites. Not to be confused with the Canaanites later, right? So these are just the descendants of Cain. Okay, let's have a look. This is from Genesis 4, chapter 19. And I'm just going to just pick out some bits that I think are helpful. Lamech, who is a descendant of Cain, married two women. And you think, oh, wow, the Bible condones polygamy. Well, you might well say the same thing about slavery. Not so. The Bible names these things as what's going on. Never once does it say this is the way it should be. In fact, when you see polygamy in the Bible, it always ends terribly. Just so you know, one woman is enough. I'm quite confident of that. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zilia, and I will sprain my tongue before I am done. Adam gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. Notice it's saying what they did. His brother's name was Jabal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. And then Zilia also had a son, Tabal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. The point of this little snippet is to give us a window into the world and what's going on. We can see that these group of people, the descendants of Cain, had become quite affluent. The Bible's showing us and telling us that they're named and what they did is what's important. What they make with their own hands is how they're defining themselves. And then we have this. We have Lamech, who is speaking to his wives and he's boasting. He's kind of like, oh, you know, I'm a man's man. He says this, I've killed a man for wounding me. You know, I've just killed someone just because they harmed me, a young man for injuring me. So it's just, it's just a, just a one-line kind of boast about, these, about what he had done. All right, so this group of people are prosperous. We can see that. They're defining themselves by what they do, by what they own, by what they make. Now, does that not sound familiar? They're doing that. And then they're living lives seeking their own pleasure and their own self-indulgence. Right, these are people who are walking not with God, they're walking in their own strength, doing their own things. And then in stark contrast, we have Genesis 4, verse 25. So jump down to the bottom and you'll see this. Adam made love to his wife again, hopefully more than once, sorry, that was just a terrible joke, wasn't it? She gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, Abel since Cain killed him. 
Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on, which means to proclaim the name of the Lord. So the contrast is clear. One group is happily doing things in their own strength, their own things, not caring about God, going their own way. The other group, there's no mention of what they did, what they made. It's just simply they lived, they had children, they lived for so many years, they died, and it goes down and down and down and down it goes. All right, that is until Genesis 5 verse 1. And it starts like this. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. It's a restatement of what we've learned earlier. It's, and it's, this is what he's saying over this other line, this other, the third son of Adam and Eve. They're, this is what they're saying about Seth and his descendants. And to this line of people, Noah is born. But before we get to that, like I said, there's no talk of self-achievement, there's no boasting, and then there's this throwaway line in chapter 5. So now we've gone from 4 to 5, we're moving quick, verse 24. And if you have a look, verse 21, pardon me, and it says this. When Enoch, so this is on the line of Seth, had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. They lived a long time. We've talked about this before. Do we think, oh, why don't we live that long now? I think it's just a matter of the genes were more pure and people lived longer. I think it's a matter of that. I don't think we need to actually bring that into it, but it's just worth mentioning. And then it says this, Enoch walked faithfully with God and he was no more because God took him away. So Enoch didn't die. Everyone else listed on this line of Seth, they're all listed, then they simply lived for so long and then they died, they had such and such a children. Then Enoch, who didn't die, he walked faithfully with God. Perhaps the blessing of family. If you notice, the change was 65 years, they had their first son, and that's when he started walking faithfully with God. Maybe this blessing of a family this family unit, if you remember in Genesis 1, the first great blessing from God is the man and the woman coming together for, to make a family, to be together, to have children. This is blessed from God. And we feel it, don't we? We get so much value, so much great stuff from the family unit. Obviously, it doesn't always go according to plan. There is pain and there's problems, but we know at the heart of it, the family is a good thing. And we particularly know it's a good thing because the world tells us it isn't. All right, I was reading just this morning. I just happened to click at the news I shouldn't have before I got out of bed. I wanted to snooze. And there's this article of, of just someone just kind of boasting the kids have grown up and now I'm living life my way. And I'm just like, what is with that? But that's the world we live in. Sorry, moving on. I'm getting off track. Second group of people we have in this section are the offspring of angels. Offspring of angels. Have a look. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. To our New Testament eyes, this is not a big deal. We are so used to being referred to as sons and daughters of God. And we are adopted sons and daughters of God. But that's not the language. That's not what's in the Hebrew text here. Here, sons of God is a special linguistic phrase that always in the Old Testament, it only appears a few times, it always refers to angelic beings. 
The sons of God are angelic beings coming to earth and taking human wives and making babies. What? I'm like, what do you do with that? Angels leaving their proper dwelling place, taking human wives to make babies. It just sounds silly. Surely we should be embarrassed that this is in the Bible. And I mean, look, we could say that it's, it's, it's a contradiction. We could then switch to Matthew 22.30. Don't jump there. I'll put the passage up. And it says this. This is Jesus speaking. So some would say that can't be the case. Angels aren't, can't marry. They don't marry because Jesus said at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. It's no contradiction. Jesus has just simply made it clear that in heaven there is no marriage. doesn't mean we're not capable of marriage or that angels are not capable of marriage. It just means that in heaven, in his presence, it's not necessary or needed. It's not part of the story anymore. Besides, we are speaking of angels who have left heaven. The book of Jude speaks to this story in Genesis. The book of Jude is a New Testament book, just one chapter. And it says this from verse 6. The angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling place. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Jude's not the only place in the New Testament where this story of angelic sin, because that's what's happening here in Genesis 6, the angels are sinning and rebelling from God, and it's referenced here also in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. After being made alive, he, that's Jesus, went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Why was that necessary? Why even put it in the text? Is it a bit of an I told you so? Perhaps these angels rebelled from God because he was doing nothing about the sin of mankind. And Jesus went to say, ha here I am. I am doing something about the sin of mankind. I don't know. I'm just making it up. The text doesn't say but 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 does say, For if God did not spare angels, that is the sons of God, when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Genesis 6 is clear. Angels have left heaven, their proper dwelling place. They were disobedient towards God. They sinned. They married human women and had children. And it's clearly abomination. I mean, they have been put in chains for what they have done. Now, this begs the question, why the flood? Were these abominations the reason for the flood? Well, if you've ever heard of the book of Enoch, it would suggest so. Remember Enoch? He was the one who did not die. There are two Enochs, though, because there was Enoch to the line of Cain, but he's just briefly mentioned. We're not talking about him. We're talking about this Enoch who did not die. And in his book, so-called his book, Angels are a big feature. It features this cosmic battle between good and evil with humans caught in the middle. So what's going on? Is this what's happening here? To some degree it is. But the text, the Bible, it doesn't support what's going on in this other book. We'll talk about that in a minute. But have a look at verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal Their days will be 120 years. 
It's not sad, but it's implied that there's a problem with these human-angel hybrids. Perhaps they live forever. Perhaps they do. I mean, why else restate what God had already stated, that all humans will die, and other to make it clear that now he has put this curse upon them? The situation, the disobedience of Adam and Eve, it remains. And even angels are not excluded from the consequences of human sin. Now I want to talk about our third book, our third group. We'll come back to Enoch in a minute. I do want to talk briefly about the Nephilim. And I, yeah, what do you do? What do you do with this stuff? It's worth talking about. It's in the Bible. It has a reason. And this is what it says in verse 4. The Nephilim were on earth in those days and also afterwards. So the Nephilim were there. They were there. Whatever they are, whoever they are, they were there when angels came to earth and took human, human wives. So they're not the sons and daughters of the angels and human hybrids. They were there in those days and afterward, as it says, when the sons of daughters of humans had children with them. And then it says this, they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. Who are the they? Are the they the human-angel hybrids or are the they the Nephilim? The text isn't entirely clear who it's talking about. I don't think it's the angel-human hybrids. Otherwise, why would God imprison these angels for what they had done? If they were men of renown, if they were important to these early early Hebrew readers, then why would God even say that? It's not clear. We can talk about it till the cows come home and it doesn't actually matter. Enter the book of Enoch. Now, for those who don't know, the book of Enoch, of this other text outside our biblical canon, the Bible is 66 different books put together into one text. It's a library of books, over 40 different authors written over nearly a 2,000-year period with one purpose, one hope, one joy, and that's in Jesus Christ. Yes, I am am somewhat um, a Jesus person, what can I say? Now, where was I? Okay, so Enoch's an early Jewish text, and it kind of smells a lot like other scriptures, particularly the apocalyptic, that's the word. It's like the scriptures that talk about end times and stuff. Now, this book is clearly, was clearly and decisively rejected by the church, by the early church, by the first Christians. It is not authoritative teaching. There are places in the Bible where it's referenced. That doesn't make it authoritative. It just means that it existed. Question, though, who's seen the latest Noah movie? Anyone? Two people? Come on, more of you have seen that new Noah movie. I guess it's not that new now. Oh, it's all right. It's a bit of entertainment. Did you know this new Noah movie was written by an atheist? It's complete fantasy. What he does is he takes the book of Enoch, takes the book of Genesis, smashes them together. For what reason? Probably to make himself a heap of money by doing a story that Christians tend to love, but ultimately it's to make fun of us. You know, I don't know if you've seen it, but they have the angels getting restored to heaven, all sorts of wacky stuff. Unimaginative fantasy. And in this way, the book of Enoch is unimaginative fantasy as well. There are truths in these other books. But truths are always, this is why they deceive. You have to have some truth wrapped in myth and lies. This book of Enoch is a third century collection of false teachings, fragments from some 300 years earlier. But there's only just a couple of fragments that are actually were circulating earlier. The rest is just whatever. 
It's a story in the third century of Christians who are no longer being persecuted. So I think they've just got too much time on their hands when they come up with this stuff. Now, don't take my word for it. Paul, he gives this book of Enoch a scathing report. And this is what he says to Timothy about it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. He says this, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. He's speaking about these mythological teachings recorded under the name of Enoch. And how do we know this? Because the book of Enoch features these genealogies of Satan, no less. But wait, there's more. Paul goes on to say why these teachings are so dangerous to the church. Paul says this. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Let me unapologetically say something. Isn't this what happens when we start focusing on the work of evil instead of the work of Christ? We start focusing too heavily on all these supernatural things. Then what happens is faith takes a back seat. Instead of talking about what we can do with and for and in Christ, we start talking about cosmic powers of good and evil. God made me do it. All that sort of stuff. Enoch is a distraction. And I'm not done because Paul speaks again in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. The end of the day, Genesis 6 couldn't care less. Right? Where they've drawn these myths from, the text doesn't care less about this stuff. These one-liners about human-angel hybrids and the Nephilim, they're just footnotes of a, in a great and wonderful story that leads us to the cross. But don't take my word for it. Have a look at verse 5. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race has become. He's not the wickedness of the angels, not the Nephilim, not the hybrids. The human race had become on earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil all the time. We know there are a few good men in amongst all this. We know angels fell into temptation. We know God steps in. And yes, this is a bitter turn of events. This is the story we're getting to. This is what we're here for. Only a short while ago in Genesis 1, God created everything. It wasn't just good, it was very good. And here in chapter 6, we have what has become the exact opposite. Every inclination, every thought of the human heart was evil all the time. And just in case we haven't had enough controversy, Genesis 6 gives us a real doozy, another one. And this is the winner, right? If you want to make a Christian struggle, if you want to challenge us, if you want to make a mockery of our faith, then this is the verse you want to go to. This is the one. Have a look. Verse 6, Genesis 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. The Lord regretted making human beings. I struggle with this and I don't get it. I don't make any sense. See, if God regretted, the literal translation is to repent. So God turned from what he knew was wrong. Now that might 
don't know about you, but me, it sounds odd. It sounds like God is now changeable. It sounds like God is infallible. We know he's neither of those things, and I'm happy with that. But still, this is odd, and it's why the translation does what it does. They put, Lord, regretted. Now, I went digging, trying to find some theologians that would give me a good answer on this one. I couldn't find one. I really couldn't. Bible-believing theologians tend to chalk this just up as a language problem, which it may well be. God didn't repent. That's not possible. Instead, God was just sorrowful, which is what you see in the English translation. He was sorrowful that he allowed humans to do what they have done. And they say it's a bit like how he calls out to Adam in the garden. Where are you? I mean, who thinks that God didn't know where Adam was? God knew where Adam was. But to call out to him, to imply he didn't, is to show us how deep and wide the separation between God and humanity had become. This language is just to show us how estranged we are from God. It's exactly what we see in the New Testament when we are told to hate our mothers and fathers. Clearly, that's not, we're not to hate them. But we're to hate them and love God. It's a comparison. We love God so much. We follow his ways with our whole hearts so much that it's as if we hate our brothers and sisters. It's a language trying to draw out just this great separation, trying to draw out how sad God is at what has happened. And I think it does that well. But again, there's no real clear answer to this. So we go on to verse 7. If you do have a good answer for that last one, tell me at morning tea. The Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret, repent, that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. In a throwaway sentence, God speaks of Noah. He speaks of Noah as he does the true Enoch. He speaks of Enoch and Noah as he does select people over the centuries who did his work and followed his ways, who kept speaking against these people who kept turning from God and putting them on the right track. And then what's amazing is he speaks this way of every person who's in Christ. To each of us, he says, on that last day, good and faithful servant. What's the point, though? What's Genesis 4 to 6 really about? Well, it's simple. God is angry at our sin. God's angry at our sin. And there's no shifting the blame. That's what those other spiritual books tend to do. They want to blame angels. They want to blame cosmic powers for all the sin and trouble and toil in the world. We're just pawns in the middle of it. No, this text says, we cannot blame angels for the hate in this world. We can only blame ourselves. We can't blame Satan when we give in to temptation. The devil made me do it. We can't do that. That's what he's saying here. We can't blame God when we see, when he allows suffering and death. All suffering, all death is a result of our disobedience, of our sinfulness before God. And we can't even blame our wives, right? That's a Genesis joke, you know. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake, the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Come on, it's an oldie but a goodie. We can only blame ourselves. Take responsibility. That's what Genesis 6 is saying. You want to change the world? Great. You want to change the world? Fantastic. 
and you can do it. All you've got to do is take responsibility for your sin. That's it. Take responsibility for your part in the brokenness around us and you will change the world. For we use this free gift, this gift of a free will. It was a gift given to us as we are made in God's image, a gift given in love. And the purpose of that gift is so we may respond in love. For a love forced is not love at all. And this gift of free will is given so we can respond to the God who created us. Instead, so much of us, we act like the descendants of Cain. We use this gift of free will for our own purposes, for our own satisfaction, to boast about what we make with our own hands, to pat ourselves on the back when we do great things. And then we see Enoch. Living into the blessing that it is to have and make a family. We see him taken by God. In him, death had no sting. And this is exactly what we are reminded of when it comes to those of us who are in Christ. Take responsibility for your sin. When we take responsibility for our mistakes and our shame, then God steps in. A great rescue plan that is the cross of Christ. Christ, take, Christ takes that upon himself so we may be right with God. How about we together, if you're willing, I'm willing. How about we again turn from what we don't do and not just from what we do that's wrong. So much of our sin is not just about what we do that's wrong. It's actually about what we fail to do. And that's here on the screen as we pray together as it is our custom to do because it's a constant reminder. The scriptures detail a story of a people who turn from God and then they are destroyed over and over again. There's a faithful remnant who walk the ways of the Lord and they remain and they are restored. That's why we have the scriptures. This thread remains, these covenants that God makes with his people who walk in his ways. They're not perfect. They're not a moral example. I mean, they had lots of problems, but at the end of the day, it's God who decides what's what. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have broken your holy laws and have left undone what we ought to have done. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us, and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God desires that none should perish. He gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn to him, but eventually the opportunities do come to an end and there is a flood, a washing away. God desires that none should perish, but that all should turn to Christ and live. And in response to his call, we acknowledge our sins and God pardons all of those who humbly repent and truly believe the gospel. Therefore, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.